0: Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week in place of vets and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with... One of the big stories of the week has been Brexit, the latest developments, an article here about David Davis and his comments on Brexit, this is in the Daily Mail. David Davis warns Theresa May that a third way plan for Brexit is unworkable in a letter which claims the EU will simply reject the proposals. David Davis has warned Theresa May that a third-way plan for Brexit is unworkable, it was reported last night. The Brexit secretary is said to have sent the Prime Minister a letter outlining his opposition to proposals to be presented to the Cabinet tomorrow. He is said to be concerned the EU will simply reject the plan out of hand. The letter warned the compromise the Prime Minister intends to present will fail because it is simply a customs partnership with extra technological elements. And it expresses fears that Brussels has already rejected the idea of allowing a third-party country, as Britain will be after Brexit, to police EU borders and that Discussing such an option is a waste of time. Sources told the Daily Telegraph that Mr Davis is understood to be frustrated that Mrs May and her chief negotiator, Ollie Robbins, are refusing to acknowledge the EU's position, setting up the UK to fail. One said, this plan would be like Donald Trump allowing us to keep an eye on his borders for him. It will never happen. We need to have this row in the now so that we have time to negotiate something bespoke with heads of state before it's too late. The letter is being seen as an attempt to avoid cabinet resignations at the Chequers summit on Friday. It points out that the four freedoms of the EU, including freedom of movement, are indivisible. Mr Davis is understood to fear that discussing the planet at Chequers would delay progress because the EU will inevitably reject it, sending the UK back to the drawing board. Mr Davis's spokesman did not respond to calls last night. Britain would secure the right to set its own tariffs and trade policy under the third way option. Whitehall sources last night dismissed reports that the compromise plan would force the UK to continue to impose EU tariffs after Brexit, an idea that would have wrecked hopes of striking new trade deals. Instead, 96% of imports would be covered by tariffs set by the British Parliament. Sources also deny claims that Theresa May is prepared to compromise on free movement in order to secure a better trade agreement, but they acknowledge that she will ask ministers to sign up to the idea of full regulatory alignment with the EU on goods in order to increase the chances of frictionless trade patent with Brussels and resolve the Northern Ireland border problem. The move would alarm Eurosceptics who warned yesterday that it could limit the UK's ability to strike new trade deals. The third way is so called because it is a compromise between a maximum facilitation deal, backed by Brexiteers, which will slash customs controls and barriers, and a new customs partnership, which is backed by Remainers. In an effort to calm nerves, Number 10 offered to take the highly unusual step of briefing MPs on the Chequers agreement on Saturday morning. Mrs May will warn ministers tomorrow they have to come up with a proposal that will not be rejected out of hand by Brussels and Remainers in Parliament. Some pro-Brexit ministers believe there is no need to cure the proposal because it would block the EU, which has insisted that the UK cannot have full access to the single market unless it accepts free movement in the full EU rulebook. Mrs May will today try to persuade German Chancellor Angela Merkel not to dismiss their proposals. A group of more than 40 Tory Eurosceptic MPs held a stormy meeting with the Chief Whip Julian Smith to warn they would not accept a deal that keeps Britain in the EU at all but name. Andrew Jenkins, who quit the government to speak out on Brexit last month, urged Eurosceptic Cabinet Ministers to show their steel. And there's another section here covering different parts of the EU deal. Customs. Britain would leave the EU's common external tariff, allowing Parliament to set its own tariff rates. This was a key demand from Brexiteer Ministers. Sources said British tariffs would apply to 96% of imports for a small proportion of unfinished goods destined for the EU. The UK would apply EU tariffs and collect them on Brussels' behalf. EU tariffs would also apply to goods that simply transit through British ports. Regulation. UK would agree to maintain full regulatory alignment with Brussels and goods. This was demanded by Business Secretary Greg Clark and Chancellor Philip Hammond is vital for frictionless trade. But many Eurosceptics believe it would wreck hopes of new trade deals. Parliament would retain a fig leaf of control with the ultimate ability to tear up the deal, but this would come at the price of losing trade access. Immigration. The PM told MPs that ending free movement remains a red line in negotiations, but some ministers are pushing her to trade access to the British jobs market for access to Europe's single market. And trade. Mrs May said that the deal would allow the UK to set an independent trade policy, allowing Britain to slash tariffs on imports as part of new deals. But it is far from clear that Brussels would agree to a deal that would allow the UK to be a low tariff island with full access to EU markets. Pro Brexit MPs said that without the freedom to change rules, the prospects for new trade deals may be slim. And there's an article here. At a glance, the new UK Brexit plan agreed at Chequers.
1: The cabinet has reached
0: an agreement on the UK's future relationship with the EU after Brexit. Here are the key points from the three-page deal published by the government. Common rulebook: The UK will maintain a common rule book for all goods with the EU, including agricultural products, after Brexit. A treaty will be signed committing the UK to continued harmonisation with EU rules, avoiding friction on the UK EU border, including Northern Ireland harmonization means parliament will oversee the uk's trade policy and have the ability to choose to diverge from the eu rules recognizing that this would have consequences cooperative arrangement cooperative arrangements will be established between the eu and uk competition regulators different arrangements will be organized for services where it is in our interest to have regulatory flexibility joint jurisdiction a joint institutional framework will be established to interpret UK-EU agreements. This will be done in the UK by UK courts and in the EU by EU courts. But decisions by UK courts will involve due regard paid to EU case law in areas where the UK continues to apply a common rule book but decisions by UK courtsmen involve due regard paid to EU case law in areas where the UK continue to apply a common rule book. Cases will still be referred to the European Court of Justice as the interpreter of EU rules but cannot resolve disputes between the two. Mm. One of the buzz terms Mm. over the years has been international law, and that is obviously the law of the planned world government, which I'll talk a bit more about in a minute. I've talked about before. This is the unelected bureaucrats like we have now in Brussels, except on a world level this is the law they will be implementing on behalf of the elite through the world government and through the european union for europe for the countries of europe and eu law is just the eu agenda being enshrined in law and if you want a world dictatorship you have to control the legal system facilitated customs arrangement borders between the uk and eu will be treated as a combined customs territory the UK would apply domestic tariffs and trade policies for goods intended for the UK but charge EU tariffs and their equivalent for goods which will end up heading into the EU. A post brexit UK will be able to control its own tariffs for trade with the rest of the world without causing border disruption. This avoids a hard Irish border and removes the need for backstop arrangements to be put in place before the UK's withdrawal from the EU, the government says. Free movement The agreement says it will end free movement of people giving the UK back control over how many people enter the country. A mobility framework will be set up to allow UK and EU citizens to travel to each other's territories and apply for study and work. Overall aims. These proposals represent a precise and responsible approach to the final stage of the negotiations, the government says. According to the government, the plan gives the UK an independent trade policy with the ability to set its own non-EU tariffs and to reach separate trade deals. Ends the role Of the ECJ and UK affairs, ends annual payments to the EU budget with appropriate contributions for joint action in specific areas. The only reaction for Brexiteers has been that they need to see the full 100 plus page plan to see whether or not they agree with the government's claims. Full details will be released in the white paper next week. One last reminder this is not a final Brexit deal. This is an agreement on the UK's preferred way forward as negotiations with the European Union about the future relationship reach a crucial stage. Well, I've said before that the European Union was created and exists not to make Europe more efficient, although that was one of the selling points initially, but to dictate policy and law, ultimately dictated by unelected bureaucrats in Brussels to the countries of Europe within the Union, eventually planned to be every country, and the unions are planned to be dictated to by unelected elite world government. This is the Hunger Games Society. See episode 4 for more information. So they don't want countries leaving, they want to encompass increasingly more countries and this is why Brexit is dragged on for so long with negotiations and extending the leave date ever further away. They don't want Britain leaving because of Britain's importance and influence globally along with America. The laws and policy dictated through the EU are the elite's global agenda being introduced into the society of each country. Yes, there are certain EU laws that are there for the benefit of people. Yes, there are some, but the overall purpose of the European Union is to be a filter for world government law to be funnelled through to the countries, people and businesses of Europe. And they want unions for every part of the world, world government will dictate to. And will run with the same structure as the European Union. Although in the end there will be no countries, only mega regions in the Agenda 21 smart cities agenda. And there will be no businesses, only corporations. If people don't like the European Union now, we've seen nothing yet. The Brexit deal keeps changing all the time. It changes from week to week. That's why I don't report on every change in the Brexit negotiations, because it could change the next week. The unelected bureaucrats are far more powerful than Theresa May. I hope we end up with a Brexit worth the name, but I don't expect it not to be a Brexit in name only. If we do get a Brexit name only, I hope it brings home to people that there is no true democracy. A lot of people voted for Brexit because of the impact of free movement, because of being called racist and xenophobic, for pointing out the simple facts that migration is causing financial problems for the indigenous population of Britain because of migrants are getting jobs British people want, and the same with housing. That causes problems for British people, obviously, and the simple fact that you can't keep pouring water into a jug and expect it not to overflow. And in many ways, Brexit was a screen by people who've had their voice silenced and or their comments and themselves castigated for being racist and xenophobic by progressives and politically correct zealots, just for pointing out simple facts. People who were not actually racist and xenophobic, but they've been called that because the progressives don't wanna hear that Migration has to have a limit because otherwise clearly you're going to reach a point where it's too much in any country. Brexit was a way for those people to make their voice heard finally. People who have reservations like the ones I've mentioned and others about migration finally had a voice. The impact of migration on Britain and the people of Britain means nothing to those in power. Indeed, that's the plan, that's the agenda for reasons I explain in episodes 12 and 21. This is happening because, as I keep saying, societies are gender-driven, not people-driven. And Brexit, as it's played out so far, or not played out, to be more accurate, is a great and topical example. Story here about bus routes facing budget cuts. Now, that seems to be important, but a really small story, but there's actually so much that comes from it and this is in the Daily Mail. Death of the local bus. Councils are causing the slow death of local routes with budget cuts. Councils are causing the slow death of local buses with budget cuts, a report warns today. Some 199 routes were altered or withdrawn in the last year alone, the analysis shows. Funding has almost halved over the past eight years for buses that rely on help from councils, according to the Campaign for Better Transport. Its report revealed that 3,088 of these supported bus services have been reduced, altered or withdrawn since 2010 to 2011. Local authorities' bus budgets in England and Wales were slashed by £20.5 million last year, the eighth consecutive annual cut. They have decreased by £182 million, or 45%, over the last eight years, the report says. Of the 199 routes affected last year, most were in the northwest, 77 and followed by the east of England, 45 and Yorkshire and Humber, 44. A spokesman for the Campaign for Better Transport said the slow death of the supported bus continues. They added that bus cuts would isolate the elderly in rural areas and lead to greater reliance on cars. The local government association insisted councils were desperate to protect local routes, but savings must be made to fund other services, such as social care. Well, that's a short article, but so much comes from it. This plays into the United Nations Agenda 21 and the Hunger Games Society, where countries are broken up into mega-regions and you need permission to travel between them with everyone living in smart cities run by artificial intelligence. This story, therefore, about bus routes also connects into the transhumanism technological agenda. See episode 11 for more information. And it also connects into the elite's depopulation agenda I've talked about many times before. Because if you're going to cram people into what are known as human settlement zones in Agenda 21 language and into these smart cities, then you need to cull a massive amount of the population in each country. Which means we're looking at a global cold being orchestrated through wireless, smart and other technology. Genetically modified food and additives and food and drink. Toxins all around us. Chemtrails. For what they are, see episode 11. And in other ways as well. And with 5G and with 5G Wi-Fi, there's going to be a lot more people cold. If we allow it. The idea is that certain routes and certain areas of the mega region, previously known as a country... Would be not allowed to be traveled to or accessed and that's what this is about i've talked before about a guy called dr richard day see episodes 17 and 18 for more information and he talked about restrictions on travel day said travel would become very restricted people would need permission to travel and they would need a good reason to travel if you didn't have a good reason for your travel you would not be allowed to travel and that's where this is going this is what driverless cars are about They're being worked on by the monster Google, of course they are, because driverless cars will be programmed via the onboard computer, not to take you anywhere, authority doesn't want you to go, or anyone to go. And where, in this article it says, the local government association insisted councils were desperate to protect local routes, but savings must be made to fund other services, such as social care. Well, that might be the case, but the point is this. It's a great example of this story of how the elite's agenda is dictated through every level, whether global or local, because the council is desperate to protect local routes may be desperate to protect local routes, but their funding and focus is being dictated from those in the council who know more than they do. So it's been decided that these bus routes will have their budgets cut because of this agenda I'm talking about, but only a few in the council making those decisions will know that's why it's happening. Compartmentalization, that's how this global agenda is structured. A tiny few people in full knowledge dictate to everyone else with less and less knowledge as you go down the pyramid structure. That goes for virtually any business, organisation, corporation. Anything is structured in this way. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. It's just a structure, but this is the structure of global control and manipulation. You can also symbolise this as a spider's web. The spider is those tiny few at the centre, the global elite. And then as you come out from the spider, you have the different strands of the web. The first strand constitutes the most exclusive secret societies and elite groups who have knowledge of the elite's agenda, because we're looking at a network of elite groups and secret societies here who are actually directing human society. These are the most exclusive secret societies and elite groups, and they have knowledge of the elite's agenda. Then, as you come out to the next lot of strands, you find more public-facing secret societies like the Bilderberg Group, which actually publishes lists for members who attend each year in a different location around the world for each meeting. We're allowed to know who attends, but not what they discuss. And given that their meetings comprise various people from the elite, politics, business, finance, media, military, etc., and they meet up in secret and what they discuss were not told about, people might ask whether that should be more known about. There's also the Council on Foreign Relations, created in 1921, which is a driver of foreign policy for America and therefore Britain. On behalf of the elite's agenda, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, created only one year before the Council on Foreign Relations in 1920, and co-founded by former American President Woodrow Wilson, which is there to coordinate policy between Britain and America. There's the Club of Rome which describes itself as an organisation of individuals who share a common concern for the future of humanity and strives to make a difference. Well it was founded in 1968 and it's very much focused on the environment and pushing agendas like human-caused climate change, which is fundamentally connected into this story because of what it can justify. There's the Trilateral Commission founded by David Rockefeller in 1973, one of these elite figures, very influential for decades in advancing this agenda, being himself part of the elite, which is there to officially coordinate policy between America, Western Europe and Japan, but cooperation in elite agenda talk means dictating policy then as you meet the next lot of strands in the web you find the inner core and highest levels of secret societies people have widely heard of like the freemasons knights templar knights of malta and others and satanism as well that one needs to be mentioned and then you meet the next lot of strands and you find the lower levels of secret societies people have heard of like the lower levels of freemasonry where most freemasons in the world are and stay for their entire lives not least because they're never told there's anything beyond the lower levels like the bottom three degrees for example, then you meet the next lot of strands and you find government and government organisations and local councils and council employees, etc. And by this point, apart from those in government with either some connection to this elite directly, like Peter Mandelson in Britain when he was in government, there's pictures of him with a Rothschilds or those with at least some knowledge of the elite's agenda, then at this level, you're starting to meet people who are in literally a different world in terms of level of knowledge, of understanding of the agenda, and level of knowledge and understanding of why things are happening. They won't have a clue, many of them. And eventually, when you get to the last strand in the web, you meet people among the general population who are making contributions every day to advance this agenda, who have no idea that there even is an agenda, never mind that part in advancing it. But this is how it works. People might say, well, if a few people can't control the world. Well, they can if you have the right structure. And this story here about bus route budgets being cut is a wonderful example of what I'm talking about. Story here about DNA and artificial intelligence. This is in the Daily Mail. Scientists have created an AI inside a test tube using strands of DNA and they hope it will soon start to form its own memories. An artificial neural network that's made entirely from DNA and mimics the way the brain works has been created by scientists in the lab. The test tube artificial intelligence can solve a classic machine learning problem by correctly identifying handwritten numbers. The work is a significant step in demonstrating the ability to program AI into man-made organic circuits, scientists claim. This could one day lead to human-like robots made from entirely organic materials rather than shiny metal cybermen seen in popular culture. Researchers hope the device will soon start forming its own memories from examples added to the test tube. Their ultimate goal is to program intelligent behaviors such as the ability to compute, make choices and more with artificial neural networks made from DNA. Experts at Caltech chose a task that is a classic challenge for electronic artificial neural networks recognizing handwriting. This was one of the first tasks tackled by machine vision researchers and an ideal method to illustrate the capabilities of DNA-based neural networks. Human handwriting can vary widely, and so when a person scrutinises a scribbled sequence of numbers, the brain performs complex computational tasks in order to identify them. Because it can be difficult even for humans to recognise one another's sloppy handwriting, especially mine. Identifying handwritten numbers is a common test for programming intelligence into AI neural networks. These networks must be taught how to recognize numbers, account for variations in handwriting, then compare an unknown number to their so-called memories and decide the number's identity. The team demonstrated that a neural network made out of carefully designed DNA sequences could carry out chemical reactions to indicate you had correctly identified molecular handwriting. When given an unknown number, this so-called smart soup would undergo a series of reactions and output two fluorescent signals, for example, green and yellow to represent a five, or green and red to represent a nine. Lead researcher Lulu Qian, assistant professor of bioengineering, said, Those scientists have only just begun to explore creating artificial intelligence and in molecular machines. Its potential is already undeniable. Similar to how electronic computers and smartphones have made humans more capable than 100 years ago, artificial molecular machines can make all things made of molecules, perhaps including even paint and bandages, more capable and more responsive to the environment in the 100 years to come. The article goes on. Unlike visual handwriting that varies in geometrical shape, each example of molecular handwriting does not actually take the shape of a number. Instead, each molecular number is made up of 20 unique DNA strands chosen from 100 molecules, each assigned to represent an individual pixel in any 10 by 10 pattern. These DNA strands are mixed together in a test tube. Given a particular example of molecular handwriting, the DNA neural network, neural basically means brain, the DNA neural network can classify it into up to nine categories, each representing one of the nine possible handwritten digits from one to nine. First, the team built a DNA neural network to distinguish between handwritten sixes and sevens. They then tested 36 handwritten numbers and the test should neural network correctly identified all of them. The system theoretically has the capability of classifying over 12,000 handwritten sixes and sevens. 90% of those numbers taken from a database of handwritten numbers used widely for machine learning into the two possibilities. Crucial to this process was encoding a winner-take-all competitive strategy using DNA molecules. In this strategy, a particular type of DNA molecule, dubbed the Annihilator, was used to select a winner when determining the identity of an unknown number. The annihilator forms a complex with one molecule from one competitor and one molecule from a different competitor and reacts to form an inner unreactive species. The annihilator quickly eats up all of the computer molecules until only a single competitor species remains. The winning competitor is then restored to a high concentration and produces a fluorescent signal indicating the network's decision. The winning competitor is then restored to a high concentration and produces a fluorescent signal indicating the network's decision. Next, the team built upon the principles of the first DNA neural network to develop one even more complex and one that could classify single digit numbers one through none. The team now plans to develop artificial neural networks that can learn, forming memories from examples added to the test tube. In this way, they say the same smart soup can be trained to perform different tasks. The four findings were published in the journal Nature. And there's another couple of sections here. Why did researchers use DNA to create a test tube AI? Key to creating biomolecular circuits out of DNA are the strict binding rules between molecules of DNA. A single-stranded DNA molecule is composed of smaller molecules called nucleotides, abbreviated ATCNG arranged in a string or sequence. The nucleotides in a single-stranded DNA molecule can bond with those of another single strand to form double-stranded DNA, but the nucleotides bind only in very specific ways. An A nucleotide always binds with a T and a C nucleotide with a G. Taking advantage of these predictable binding rules, researchers were able to design short strands of DNA to undergo predictable chemical reactions in a test tube and thereby compute tasks such as molecular pattern recognition. In 2011, they created the first artificial neural network made of DNA molecules that could recognize four simple patterns. In July 2018, they unveiled test tube artificial intelligence, which can solve a classic machine learning problem by correctly identifying handwritten numbers. And then there's another section here How does artificial intelligence learn? All systems rely on artificial neural networks, which try to simulate the way the brain works in order to learn. ANNs can be trained to recognise patterns and information including speech, text data or visual images and are the basis for a large number of the developments in AI over recent years. Conventional AI uses input to teach an algorithm about a particular subject by feeding it massive amounts of information. An algorithm is basically a computer code that runs automatically and once you've input the details for the algorithm it will run according to your input without you having to prompt it to do so it goes on practical applications include google's language translation services facebook's facial recognition software and snapchat's image altering live filters the process of inputting this data can be extremely time consuming and is limited to one type of knowledge a new breed of ann is called adversarial neural networks pitched widths two ai bots against each other which allows them to learn from each other this approach is designed to speed up the process of learning as well as refining the output created by AI systems. Well, this story connects two elite agendas, I'll talk about genetics first, I'll talk about DNA in episode 11. Genetics is an area that is really very well understood outside the public arena, in the shadows where the real cutting edge scientific understanding lies, which is light years ahead of the mainstream sites in the public arena. There are various reasons why there's an agenda to target and genetically engineer this human genetic structure. Genetically modified food plays into this agenda. When you introduce hybrid genetic information into the human form's own genetic structure, obviously that's going to have an effect. I talk about GM food in episode 20 and genetically modified food is there to genetically modify us and I'll explain why that is as I go through. Also I've talked before about epigenetics where experiential genetic and other changes are passed on to the next generation. So for example one generation becomes generation snowflake. This generation that is perpetually offended by anything and the next generation is born generation snowflake and this will have implications with the next story I read out today. This is how epigenetics works. There's also much known as Genetic memory, which on one level is passing on a certain reaction to a situation down the generation. So, for example, if you're afraid of dogs, then your son or daughter might be born afraid of dogs without any experience to justify that fear. This is a BBC article, this is from December 2013. Memories passed between generations. Behaviour can be affected by events in previous generations which have been passed on through a form of genetic memory, animal studies suggest. Experiments showed that a traumatic event could affect the DNA in sperm and alter the brains and behaviour of subsequent generations. A nature and neuroscience study shows mice trained to avoid a smell past their aversion onto their grandchildren. Experts said the results were important for phobia and anxiety research. The animals were trained to fear a smell similar to cherry blossom. The team at the Emory University School of Medicine in the US then looked at what was happening inside the sperm. They showed a section of DNA responsible for sensitivity to the cherry blossom scent was made more active in the mice's spoon. Both the mice's offspring and their offspring were extremely sensitive to cherry blossom and would avoid the scent despite never having experienced it in their lives. Changes in brain structure were also found. I've talked before about how it's been found through what's known as brain plasticity, but that the brain changes due to experience. The article goes on. The experiences of a parent, even before conceiving, markedly influenced both structure and function in the nervous system of subsequent generations, the report concluded. The findings provide evidence of transgenerational epigenetic inheritance that the environment can affect an individual's genetics, which can in turn be passed on. One of the researchers, Dr Brian Diaz, told the BBC this might be one mechanism that descendants show imprints of their ancestor. There is absolutely no doubt that what happens to the sperm and egg will affect subsequent generations. The article goes on. Professor Marcus Pembrey from University College London said the findings were highly relevant to phobias, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorders and provided compelling evidence that a form of memory can be passed between generations. He commented it is high time public health researchers took human transgenerational responses seriously. I suspect we will not understand the rise in neuropsychiatric disorders or obesity, diabetes and metabolic disruptions generally without taking a multi-generational approach. The article goes on, in the smell-aversion study it is thought that either some of the odour ends up in the bloodstream which affected sperm production or that signal from the brain was sent to the sperm to alter DNA. Now this is very relevant for reasons I'll explain when I read out the next article today, the next subject. But another effect of this is the transgenerational, multi-generational fear of authority and that can be passed on through Genetic memory. Vaccines are all part of the focus for the elite on DNA. I talk about vaccines, and it's not just vaccines, other forms of pharmaceutical or medical treatment. I talk about vaccines in episode 17. Vaccines are all about injecting chemicals and toxic shite into the body, which can affect DNA and the genetic form of the body, and that's one of the reasons vaccines exist. Vaccines are also a great way to inject nanotechnology into the body, which is fundamentally part of the transhuman agenda, as I talk about in episode 11. I'm not saying that they are injecting nanotechnology through vaccines, but it's a great way to do it. Everyone's heard of DNA, of course, but what most people don't know about is RNA. I've talked before about how the body is a biological computer. It has the ability to process information and think for itself up to a point without any conscious involvement on our part computers have an antivirus system, we have the immune system. Computers have a circuit board through which energy information flows to ensure the computer operates at peak efficiency, and when the information flows through the computer too slow or incorrectly, the computer starts malfunctioning or starts working properly. We have the meridian lines of the body, which look just like a motherboard of a computer, and if energy is flowing through the body too slowly or incorrectly, we get illness, and this is how acupuncture works. Acupuncture is there to Restabilize and redirect the energy flow of the body. Computers have a hard drive. We have DNA, which can store enormous amounts of information. Computers have a CPU. We have the brain, which processes information received by the senses, sensors in computer technology language, and acts accordingly. Computers have what's known as a programming language. We have so-called junk DNA or non-coding DNA. DNA which does not code through a protein. Which was discovered by a research team led by Eugene Stanley, a physicist and professor at Boston University, may actually be a language as opposed to the rest, which is a code. And what do computers and technology work with? Codes. But when you're trying to sleep at night but can't because of the mind chatter, that's the programming language of the body computer. On one level, that's what we call thought. Computers go into what's known as sleep mode. When the computer gets a virus, rogue information in the system, the computer stops working properly. When we have a virus, we get illness or disease, and the body stops working properly. If a computer virus makes enough of an impact on the computer system, we say, my computer is dead. When a virus makes enough of an impact on us, when illness or disease makes enough of an impact on us, the body does the body is a computer so going back to RNA RNA is very important in the genetic structure because RNA basically writes the program the computer program for DNA DNA basically reflects RNA and RNA, depending on the information it itself is processing can switch on or off certain DNA functions this involves what are known as histone proteins which DNA wraps itself around. Mike Lambert, a cutting-edge multidisciplinary research practitioner and previously a member of a European Union health research team has said there are rarely single genes that cause a given disease. It's more often interactions between a number of genes that's heavily influenced by environmental factors. His stone codes are flexible and have the capacity to act as an interface between genome and environment. This means that environmental factors like toxins in food, drink, water, vaccines, cleaning products and cosmetics and radiation from smart, wireless and other technology can change our genetics by triggering RNA and histone protein responses and thereby changing DNA. This is how genetically modified food can change genetics. In effect, genetically modified food is there to genetically modify us. Also on the subject of the body being a computer are semiconductors. These are conductors of electricity used in electrical items and computers. Every cell's membrane is a liquid crystal. Research scientist and former medical professor Bruce Lipton says in his book Biology of Belief that a cell's membrane is a liquid crystal semiconductor with gates and channels. Now electricity flows through gates and channels. In other words, information flows through gates and channels and you can have electrical information and the information of the body flowing through the gates and channels of a semiconductor within the body. This is fundamental because it means that if the electrical information flowing through the body computer is destabilised by electromagnetic frequency disturbance from technological radiation all around us or by chemical influence from toxins in food, drink, water, vaccines, chemtrails, etc. Talk about chemtrails in episode 11 then these gates and channels open and close at the wrong time because they're responding to electrical signals in the body being sent in the wrong way or at the wrong time or not being sent when they should be. So these gates and channels therefore open and close at the wrong time, meaning the cells are either poisoned from toxins or impacted by radiation or the cells are not getting what they need. And this leads to illness and disease. And this is no accident. It's coldly calculated. This is the fine-detailed nature of the elite's depopulation agenda and the suppression of humanity in general. There's an article here on naturalnews.com. has some very good articles about health. Vaccinated children are more likely to develop OCD and other anxiety disorders. This is from June 27th of this year, so quite recently. A recent study led by researchers from two Ivy League universities found a link between vaccines and the onset of anxiety and other related disorders. This shocking find once again calls vaccine safety into question, though the mainstream media and other pharma shields are loath to admit it. Even the World Health Organization has quietly admitted that anxiety-related reactions following vaccination are a growing phenomenon, yet little is being done to rectify the issue. Vaccine dogma and big pharma are so powerful that even with mountains of evidence showing harm, the powers that be continue to look the other way all the while pushing for even more vaccinations at seemingly ever younger ages. Researchers from Yale School of Medicine and Penn State School of Medicine teamed up to examine the effects vaccination has on mental health. In children, in an epidemiologic, in other words, branch of medicine which deals with diseases. In an epidemiologic analysis, the scientists looked at the relationships between immunisation neuropsychiatry, in other words, the tree. Relating to mental disorders, relating to diseases of the nervous system, related to disordered brain function, for example. Anything with neuro at the front of it means brain. In an epidemiologic analysis, the scientists looked at the relationships between immunization, neuropsychiatry, and the chances of developing a disorder. Specifically, the team looked for cases of OCD, anxiety disorders, anorexia, nervosa, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, bipolar disorder, chronic disorder and major depressive disorder what they found was shocking vaccinated children were more likely to experience any one of these issues though the strongest correlation was between vaccination and the onset of anorexia nervosa anxiety, one of the disorders mentioned there, I'm seeing being mentioned more and more all over social media celebrities are talking about it something's causing it, technology could be one cause, I read out an article on pay per view before that cited technology as a possible cause of anxiety but this might be another, the article goes on The team looked at five years' worth of private health insurance data for children between the ages of six and fifteen. They found that young people vaccinated in the previous 3-12 to 12 months were significantly more likely to be diagnosed with certain neuropsychiatric disorders than their non-vaccinated counterparts. While epidemiological studies are far from conclusive, their findings raise serious concerns about the impact of vaccines on our youth. Specifically, the study gives ground to questions on the effects of over-vaccination and puts a spotlight on the potential for vaccines to trigger neurological changes and harm the immune system. The flu shot was exceptionally problematic, as were a number of other shots, like vaccines for hepatitis and meningitis. Researchers claim that the benefits of vaccines outweigh the risks of mental illness and other issues and that more research is required to further examine the relationship between vaccines and anxiety-related disorders. For many, the downplay of any findings that smack of vaccine-related harm is undoubtedly infuriating. Were vaccines anything else, there would be mass outrage. Think about it. We are instructed to continue to vaccinate our children even though scientists continue to find links between vaccines and all kinds of health problems like autism autoimmune disease, inflammatory disease, and more. But none of these links are ever sufficient enough to reconsider current vaccination schedules and public health policies. The term health is being used lightly here. That's a point when something has so much evidence against it, and when it's so insane to continue doing it, but they still push ahead with it, and they avoid focusing on any evidence to the contrary of what they say officially, then you know there's an agenda behind it. Because the agenda doesn't take no for an answer unless we make it take no for an answer. So when they push ahead with something, this is what they're doing with smart meters, even though there's evidence against smart meters growing all the time that they're a disaster. They still push ahead with it and they won't look at any evidence to the contrary. There's a massive agenda behind smart meters and that's why they're pushing ahead with it. Same with vaccines. And when they make something compulsory, as they're talking about doing now with vaccines... What they're doing in certain places in America now and Australia they've done it, or at least they may even still be doing it. When they make it compulsory, even though it's insane to continue doing it and there's massive evidence against it, then you know it's the agenda. The article goes on. If we were talking about nutritional supplements instead of a product peddled by Big Pharma, you can bet the FDA would be issuing warning letters and fines left and right by now and there'd be a media orchestrated outcry to come along with it too. Why are vaccines given a free pass? Well, they're given a free pass because they're massively part of the agenda. Therefore, nothing stops them unless we make it stop. We also have now being developed, at least in the public arena, being developed anyway. I say it's existed outside of the public arena for a long time. We have synthetic genetics called PNA or GNA. This is in addition to synthetic blood and synthetic skin. This is the transhuman agenda and transgender, fluid gender, and non binary etc. Fundamentally connect into this because without procreation there's no reason for someone to not want to become synthetic and technological. So if you are to become this transhuman, this posthuman, this synthetic human, you might have a problem with that because you might be a gender that procreates. You might see yourself as the gender that you always have been and Well I want to procreate I want to you know be able to create my own life. But if you're a gender that doesn't do that anyway then there's no reason for you not to want to become this post-human, as long as you have no problem with being technological or synthetic. If you don't, then there's no reason for you not to do that. And that's what this fluid gender, transgender thing is all about. Transgender is all part of the transition to the technological, synthetic human. So, for now, and up to this point, we've had a real focus on DNA and human genetics by the elite and their agenda but in the end they want to get rid of human genetics and replace it with synthetic genetics a synthetic genome this will make way for the technological synthetic transhuman in terms of the technological side of this with the AI these scientists have created what we're talking about here is a form of living AI which is much closer to the full-on AI of transhumanism which is the other agenda I mentioned earlier which I also talk about in episode 11. The full-on AI which is designed to eventually take over the collective mind known as the cloud or smart grid, the hive mind, the technological hive mind, that the human mind is planned to be attached to technologically wirelessly and the full-on AI that is planned to therefore take over and replace fully the human mind. This full-on AI already exists, it just needs a technological vehicle, and that's what we're seeing being built around us constantly. A point that needs to be made on this is that, and again this is why I do pay per to make the connections, while it may seem that an experiment like this or a new technological breakthrough is being made, as with Google's language translation service that's mentioned in the original article, that appears on one level to be in isolation from anything else and so there's nothing sinister about it at all, it's just language translation. They're actually all steps towards the same end goal. A technological vehicle for artificial intelligence to run everything including the human mind and the development of artificial intelligence to this end in the public arena. That's where it's all leading in the end. The media presents these steps as spontaneous breakthroughs and or random discoveries and isolated when they're actually cold calculation of the next stages towards the same end goal. They know these things are possible but it has to be seen to be done in a sequence because if they came out with the technology that exists beyond the public arena in one go people might start to ask questions about where it all came from so it has to be done in a believable pattern a believable sequence presented as isolated spontaneous and maybe even unexpected in some cases given a cover story a cover person and are rolled out in the public arena so people don't question it or its end goal which is the end of the human mind ultimately story here about fluid of gender obviously a subject i've covered many times on pay-per-view This is in the Daily Mail. Are children as young as 11 really capable of making life-changing decisions about their gender? Nine young people who all share a remarkable bond. Their stories raise one of the most controversial questions of our age. One of the most controversial and emotive issues of our age is the growing number of children and young people who feel they were born the wrong gender or who are gender fluid, someone who doesn't feel they have a fixed gender. Why? Because they're being constantly encouraged to feel like that not least through school. While many believe children as young as 11 are too young to know their minds while their bodies are still developing, the charity roommate which advises schools in the NHS, says it has taken more than 5,900 queries on its helpline and email service, many from children and young people needing help exploring their gender. It is an issue that has divided many families. This year Mermaids has organised a prom for those aged 11 to 19 who have sought its help. We speak to nine participants with their parents' permission. Keaton Schubert, 15, a trans female, lives in Oxfordshire with her mum Anne-Marie, a photographer, her mum's partner Ricky, a shop manager, and her two siblings. Mum and dad split up 14 years ago but she and nan have always been accepting i don't know where i'd be without them i liked to dress in princess outfits from the age of about two when i was six when mum let me experiment wearing girls clothes she never said you can't wear that i knew i wanted to be called she from a very early age but i went to a school where most of the pupils were boys and i was the first transgender pupil i thought i'd get my lights punched out when i grew my hair buddies threw water over me and left me out of conversations when i go home crying I'd get panicky if a teacher called me he, so mum went in and said, can you refer to Keaton as she, which was a massive relief. Although the school was supportive, I couldn't wait to leave and take a hair and beauty course. I started taking hormone blockers in 2015, which stopped my puberty. It was amazing to know I could start transitioning and say, I'm a girl, I can be who I want to be. The prom was great because I made lots of friends who know what I've been through. I'd never met another trans person before. Lots of people said they loved my dress and a few cried happy tears when they saw me in it. I wore glittery silver shoes and danced all night. My feet were still clean me the Monday after. You see, now, people who genuinely, without any propaganda, without any encouragement, without any imagery placed in front of them, as it's happening now, especially with young people, through entertainment and through school, come to the decision that they feel a different gender, then they should be supporting that. They should get all the support they need and they should be supported through their transition. Fair enough. If they've come to that decision of their own merit, of their own volition. But what we're seeing now, because there's an agenda behind transgender, there's an agenda behind fluid gender, which ends with the end of gender, which is fundamentally connected into the synthetic, non-human, transhuman, post-human agenda. We're seeing all this propaganda and imagery, especially for young people. Older people as well, but especially young people, where this is all going is the end of human as we know it. Now, that's not politically correct to say that, but who gives a fuck? Either we start addressing what is, or what is will reach its conclusion, the end of human as we know it. The reason it's not politically correct to say it It's because political correctness is there to cover up the fact that that's what this is about. Political correctness is an effort to stop people saying these things because they're frightened of being called sexist. Well, fuck it. Either we face this, or it's going to happen. People who feel they're in the wrong body, genuinely, without any propaganda, without any imagery, without any encouragement, then they should be supported and encouraged, and they should get all the support they need to transition but that's not what we're looking at, what we're looking at is an agenda to constantly place this in front of young people and I've read an article before in our pay-per-view where a headmaster of a school said, it's amazing I've never known as many kids in school question their gender, yeah because they have been encouraged to question it it's not a natural thing, if it was a natural thing then this scale of questioning from young people would have happened a long time ago instead of happening now, suddenly, out of nowhere in the last two, three years what they're doing is taking people who genuinely feel they're in a different body and they're exploiting it to sell this agenda. Take people who genuinely feel like that so that people are frightened of questioning it, frightened of stating the facts and people are frightened of saying anything in case they're called sexist. Take people who genuinely want to transition, take their stories, place it in front of people, show them how difficult it is for them dealing with the transition, and then use that, exploit that, to sell your agenda. That's what we're looking at. These stories here in this article, that's all what this is about. I'm not saying the journalist who wrote this article knows that, but that's what it is. We live in a post-fact society. Everything is emotion. People don't care about facts, people don't care about figures, people don't care about statistics. They just care about emotion. We live in a post-fact society. As long as you've got the emotion, that's it, that's all you need. I mean, I've got no problem whatsoever with people being gay, transgender, lesbian, whatever. No problem. It's not my business. None of my business what gender people are. Don't make it my business. Don't make it other people's business. Just live your life. Get on with it. The article goes on. Kai Mackin, 17, a trans male, lives in West London with his dad Neil who works in computing, mum Jo and two older sisters. It was so liberating to go to the prom and wear what I wanted, knowing no one would care. We were united by shared experience so we could be ourselves, which was brilliant. Nobody really called anyone for being different, we didn't have to apologise for being ourselves. At primary and secondary schools I was laughed at, people felt wrong, I was very unhappy. I've tried to kill myself many times, I felt my breasts were useless encumbrance, I still do. I didn't go to my high school proms, I didn't really have any friends in my year, but everyone felt like a friend at this prom. I realised I was trans after going on the internet and made a friend the only person I could ask questions when I was about 12 and asked why do I feel like this. My parents are Christians and it was terrifying wondering if they'd support you when I came out. A man had been thrown out of the church he we went to at the time just for being gay, I'd made up my mind that I would leave home immediately if my parents weren't sympathetic. It took me ages to build up the courage to talk to them, but when I did they were incredibly supportive and it was a weight off my mind. Nobody except one college cares that I'm trans and that's good. When I told one of my sisters do, she said that's great, but you're still not getting the TV remote. Michael Scaravato Grant, 16 is a trans male who lives in Kent with his parents who are both captains. As a young child I took part in the fact that you just prayed in Italy. I was forced to wear a bikini and a stuffed brow which made me cry. When I was six I went to a girls birthday party where everyone was putting on makeup. I was so terrified I hid so I didn't have to join in. So it was lovely to dress up in a dinner jacket and bow tie for the prom, and be who I really am with people who understand exactly the difficulties I've experienced. I was four when I started desperately wanting to be a boy but I pushed the thought to the back of my mind. I refused to wear a brow even when my chest developed. I started learning about trans people when I was eleven. One night I saw a magician on TV. I remember wanting to wear a suit like his and it occurred to me that I was trans, but I'd been raised thinking it was taboo so it was hard finding the note to tell my parents. How about that? You like someone's suit so therefore you must be transgender. I don't follow that myself I have to say, but still, made sense to this guy obviously. The article goes on. I'd been looking on online forums talking to people about how to connect for months. My parents didn't react well. They saw being trans as a choice and not a good one. It is a choice, it's not a natural thing, it's a choice. I was told I would always be female and should accept it even though it made me feel physically sick. I got depressed and fell into a really bad state but gradually mum and dad came right. Mum started using the he pronoun and dad started calling me Michael. I had to get my parents' consent to go to the gender identity clinic and they both came with me. Reluctantly they agreed that I could have hormone blockers which I started at 14. They're quite accepting of the situation now. Catherine Green, 15. Is a trans female, lives in the West Midlands with parents Esther and Bradley, run a printing company, shares one sister. See, there's no facts in this article, apart from how many queries the NHS have had. It's all emotion, which is exactly what I've just said. That's what we're looking at now a post fact society. This is my story, this is how I feel. Well, so what? What does that matter? Facts are what matter. There's none of that in this article. This is what Twitter storms are all about, when people go crazy on Twitter because someone's tweeted something politically incorrect and they have to have a go at them for saying it. It's all emotion, It's no facts at all. And if you want to sell an agenda, you can't do it through facts because facts speak for themselves. You have to do it through the manipulation of emotion and the manipulation of perception, both of which are fundamentally connected. And that's why we live in a post-fact world. Catherine Green, 15, a trans female, lives in the West Midlands with parents, Esther and Brad, who run a printing company. She has one sister. I was terrified my relationship with mum changed when I came out, so for a long while I repressed her. I became depressed and suicidal. Then my parents found out I was using the name Cat on social media. Mum is a Christian and when I told her she said it was the biggest mistake of my life, that it was a phase, then she completely shut down and I felt she hated me. This made me even more depressed. I started self-harming. I was so bound up in my own feelings that I didn't consider what it was like for her. She was finding it really hard to reconcile it with her faith and I was encountering transphobia in her church. I explained it was about my gender, not my sexuality. To start with I had thought I was gay and so did she, then I learned about transgender and it fitted with everything I thought. Now that's an important point. That's exactly why we're seeing this propaganda a lot of young people now are only deciding their transgender once they found out what transgender is not before the article goes on this year it started to get better mum is listening and is really accepting she's apologised over and over again and i feel lucky to have her unconditional love she fully accepts me as Catherine and says she's proud of me but we go clothes shopping together now and go going to a transgender group and getting hormone blockers and i'm really excited dad is catching up too and we're more comfortable as a family mum and dad have learned being trans is not a choice but who i am it is a choice. You might not like to hear that it's a choice, but it's a choice. The prom was really exciting. Being with lots of people who understood exactly what I've gone through has been fantastic. Alex Shepard, 16, a trans male, lives with mum, Sam, and office manager, dad, Andy, a retired IT consultant, and two siblings in the home counties. The prom was awesome because I could be myself and fit, and I just got up and danced with everyone I met. I didn't get to bed until 4 a.m. Since I was nine or 10, I felt I didn't fit my gender. I hated dresses and always wore jeans. I was hysterical at the thought of starting female puberty. In school, I wore sports bras, tried binding my chest with bandages and cut my hair short. People started saying, are you a boy or a girl, you're weird. Then when I was 12, I realised what transgender was. It was a massive relief to know, but I still had my body to worry about. On the day I told Mom it was a blur. She was confused, but said, I love you no matter what. She helped me tell Dad. Next year, I hope to be on testosterone. I'm the happiest I've ever been at sixth form. Not one person in my study group is uncomfortable with me, but some are curious. A little girl in year eight asked, are you a boy or a girl? And I said, I'm a trans boy, my brain is a boy, my body is feminine, I melted because she was so cute. She said, I'm going to tell my friends that because I didn't understand it before. That's amazing. I like to educate people about transgender issues when I can. Well, you can only educate someone if you know what you're talking about. And a lot of the people who think they're transgender don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand that there's an agenda behind it, never mind what that agenda is. The fact that it's leading to the end of human as we know it. If they knew that, a lot of them would think differently. That's why they don't know it. That's why it's not talked about. That's why that's never discussed. That's why it's politically incorrect to say it. Luke Wateridge, 17, is a trans male who lives in Hampshire with his mom, Corrine, a dog groomer. When I was 12 or so, I said to a friend, I hate the fact I'm a girl, why can't I be a boy? She said, you know that's not normal, don't you? We looked up and she asked, have you thought we might be transgender? I thought, I want to change my body. Yes, that's me. Ah, but once again, as I said, we looked up. And she asked if you thought you might be transgender. I thought I want to change my body. Yes, that's me. So after looking it up, then this person decided that's what they are. That's my point. That's why we're seeing all this propaganda. It goes on. Puberty was horrible. I was repulsed by it. I feel my body's not mine and I still get bad days when I don't want to get up or go out. That's one reason the prom was so great. I didn't have to worry about what my body looked like. Everyone understood. I made lots of friends and we've had a group chat on a messaging app since. I told my mum a year or so after I realised I was trans, I went through a hyper stage to try to get it to go away, I wore pink dresses and skirts, it took me ages to tell mum, when I did she was so shocked she couldn't speak, then she hugged me and said she'd love me no matter what, I was 13, the main difficulty for mum I think was changing the name she'd given me, she was constantly looking up names and saying should we have this or that, then she took me out to get some new clothes and all my old girl ones went into the loft. I went to my school prom and felt inhibited and worried that people would think I was weird at this prom and I was completely comfortable. Tyler 11, a trans female, lives with a mum Claire of a tired Africa working with social services and dad Sally Hill, a chef in Worcestershire. I used to drop stories into the well in our garden and wish I was a girl. I didn't think anyone would believe me if I talked about it. I was pleased when I was four and mum bought me a doll at a fair. I didn't want to wear trousers so I asked to wear shorts because they looked more like a skirt and I even wore them in the winter. I've always liked knitting, singing and dancing, and I got teased by some people at school. The girly girls didn't want me around or did the boys, and I felt very sad. I transitioned socially when I was nine. All my friends and teachers supported me, and I felt like a bird that had been freed from its cage and was learning to sing. I wore girls' clothes all the time. After that, a mum never called me by my old name, Lewis again. I was always Poppy. My grandma made a cross-stitch baby sampler when I was bored with my old name. I was going to put it in the lot, but She said she'd change it, so she's unpicked the old letters. and put Poppy Amelia on it. We've got it on the wall. My dad, who was a Muslim, didn't understand about trans to start with, which made me sad, but it didn't take him long to be happy that I'm popping he gets the knocks out of my hair and relaxes it for me. I love a sparkly thing, so dressing up with a prom is really fun, and I got loads of compliments about my dress, I loved it. My question is, why do these people, not just these kids here, but other people, people who are older who are transgender, or fluid gender, any other of the bloody endless list of genders, the next one they come up with, have to let everybody know what gender they are? Why can't they just get on with it and live their lives? Why have they got to parade it in front of everyone? Just live your life. But the more focus there is on fluid agenda, the more this agenda is sold to people. Sam Carey, 13, a trans male, lives with his mum, a teaching assistant, dad, a plaster, a twin sister and two elder siblings in South East London. My school is very accepting and inclusive, and I'm very happy there. I have a great group of friends who are very supportive. I've known from a young age that I was different, and as I have a close relationship with my family, i felt had confidence to my parents. My journey's been exciting, and I've met lots of interesting people along the way. It was very exciting being involved with something as positive as the prom. Everyone was dressed up and looking great. I had a really great time. I met loads of new friends, and I was able to be myself. I didn't want it to end. I came away with some great photos and lovely memories. Eleni, I'm naughty. Eleni, I'm... Eleni Arnouti, 14, who is from Worcestershire, is non-binary, which means they identify as neither female nor male. Eleni lives with mum, Chris, dad, Jimmy, a chef, and brother Alex, 15. If I could, I'd change myself so I didn't have gender, but I don't think that's possible. I don't feel either like a boy or a girl. It's complicated to describe, but I'd say I would like my body to be freeze framed at a time before puberty, so no one would know if I was male or female. I used to be very wild and sporty. I liked physical activities, climbing, walking, swimming. My dad, was cypriot, caused me. Shakos, which means mate, and we go fishing and hunting, which makes him feel like a child again. I've always been called weird by classmates and I've never been a good girl. Go. I suppose if I think I dress more masculine clothes, people won't notice my gender as much. When I hit puberty and couldn't go to the beach without my top and I felt depressed. I'd like to look more androgynous. It was a light bulb moment when I learnt what non-binary is. I had been self-harming, but I felt better when I had found a word to describe myself. I wore a dress for the prom, which was very unusual. I haven't worn girly clothes for about three years, but I knew I wouldn't be judged or labelled there, and it was great because everyone accepted that I wasn't she or he, just myself. Well, that's fine, but don't start dictating, and I'm not saying that this person is, but don't start dictating what I can and can't call you through Political correctness. I've talked about transgender many times, not least episode 8. There's another aspect to all this as well, and this goes back to the previous story about genetics. I said just now that epigenetics is the study of personality traits and other genetic inheritance passed on through the generations, including experiential influences. And what we've got with this little gender political threat mentality is another agenda, which is the removal of masculinity. There is an agenda to target masculinity. By that I don't just mean literal masculinity in terms of physical strength and value and physicality, although that's one expression of it. I mean mental strength, backbone and being willing to stand up and say no, even when it's difficult or perceived to be difficult to do so. They want to breed that out of people. This is why we've got this focus now on toxic masculinity. That's what they call it, and it's absolute bollocks. This is something else that just come out of nowhere recently, just like the explosion of transgender. They want people to be weak, meek, and look into the system, look into authority to protect them. So you've got the adoption of either fluid gender or weakening your masculinity if you're a male, and that then gets passed on to the next generation. So you've got multi-generational weakness and meekness, and this is perfect for the elite and their agenda. Before this episode ends, just one announcement. The Patreon campaign I mentioned a little while ago is now launched. If you go to patreon.com forward slash pay-per-view, Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, you'll find it. And whereas many crowdfunding campaigns are a one-off campaign for a certain period of time, Patreon is an ongoing monthly campaign, which means the donations are ongoing and monthly, which means that the rewards for becoming a patron as they call it on the website hence the name patreon the rewards for becoming a patron and donating are ongoing and monthly and there's also going to be lots of behind the scenes material and exclusive content only available to patrons and posts to the page which only patrons can see if you listen to the podcast that's great and the podcast has generated great numbers for listenership which can be verified if you even share the podcast that's that's fantastic if you contribute to this campaign thank you so much it means so much to me and it will be a great barometer for how interested people are in alternative information that you don't get through the mainstream media to put world events and news stories into their true context so we can see the bigger picture because without seeing the bigger picture there's no way to change anything so patreon.com forward slash pay-per-view if you want to be part of that. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the Context and Connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.